In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. crime reporter goes inside the Ella crime scene tape. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. You can follow our journey into darkness and get bonus episodes by joining our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. Our true crime cases are stranger than fiction. With that said, Here's a classic police procedural, a true crime reporter, confidential. Be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. We're talking with David Grantham, uh, a former Air Force counterintelligence officer in Afghanistan and Iraq, who now is head of intelligence for the Tarrant County Sheriff in Fort Worth. And you bring a unique skill set to this, having worked in the most difficult areas, certainly trying to recruit sources. How are you applying that to crime fighting here in Texas? And how should it be applied nationwide? I really think we have in law enforcement. So the beauty of being with Air Force Office of Special Investigation, which a lot of people don't really know the organization, we are credentialed federal agents. 1811 is the federal, which Bill would know, the federal uh, code, uh, just like the DEA, FBI, 1811s. So we investigate federal criminal activity within the military. Within that, we also have counterintelligence agents. We're still special agents, but, but I worked on the counterintelligence side. So I had the beauty of, or the luxury, if you will, the good ex, uh, great experience in working in law enforcement and intelligence so I could bridge the gap. So when I came over to the sheriff's office, I looked at the use of our jurisdiction and what we have uh, authority over and what does the sheriff of every county have authority over, the jail. With that being the case, and me coming from a human background, human intelligence, uh, I decided we need to focus um, almost all of our effort on talking to people and gathering information inside the jail. And obviously, having been at Camp Buka, I was not unfamiliar with doing that, but just in a very different environment. And what I, what I learned really quickly is that human is highly undervalued. On a, on a long, human in the long-term sense is, is undervalued. And what I've tried to bring to the table is not informants that provide momentary glimpses into an organization in order to uh, support or get them 
out of a current predicament, whether it be a, a case or whatnot, but developing long-term relationships with people so that it becomes a point where they supply information. I've had people contact me and say, you just treated me so well that I'm willing to just, you treated me like a man and I'm going to supply you some information for no other reason than that. And I, that's the one, uh, there's many different things, but that's the one overarching thing is really getting back to developing relationships with people as a, uh, as an intelligence officer using that in law enforcement. That's, that is um, just the right spot, I believe. Uh, one of my prosecutors, a guy named Jake Snyder, who was a <laughs> famous federal prosecutor that was that worked with me and for me from time to time, said, among other things, we have all the criminals in the world. What we need are witnesses. And, and in the intelligence world, even more so, you know, it's, uh, I worked in Mexico for a little while on an, an organization for the U.S. Justice Department on an organization that was smuggling for the Colombians. And everybody knows that goes on, and everybody, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a question that the crimes are taking place, but how? How are they doing it? Who do they need in this process? And in, that, in my case in particular, um, we got honest Mexican federal judicial police officers to talk to us about corrupt Mexican federal police officers. And it gave the methodology. And once we knew it was kind of like uh, having a book, but only having the cover, we need to read it like your book. We need to read it. And that that's because if you know really how they do it, who they need, when they do it um, in, in this instance, they had um, were flying these loads up from the Colombian uh, airstrips near the processing labs for coca and uh, for cocaine there and landing on dry lake beds, landing at airports in Northern Mexico and being offloaded by Mexican federal police crews. They, you know, Mexico has a tremendous problem with corruption, but we got such insight into it that it, it led to it being shut down for a period of time. Now it obviously it picks back up, but at least it gave you, the intelligence, I mean that sort of figuratively and as a term of art, to know how it's being done. And I think you're right on point. I, it's the human intelligence. Uh, and you can, because of your experience, you can filter out the BS pretty quickly, I'm sure. And also the self-serving stuff. Sometimes self-serving stuff is helpful, but sometimes it's not. But anyway, I think you're right on point there. That's incredible. They're lucky to have you. And what trends are you seeing? You're seeing new crime trends uh, that's going on that's going to threaten, you know, the safety of neighborhoods and businesses? The the crime trends we're seeing, the violent crime is going up everywhere. And when you look at violent crime, you typically assume, um, well, there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. What we have found with violent crime is you don't necessarily have more criminals on the streets, what you have is people that have been engaged in criminal activity and criminal behavior for some time that now have access to money through unemployment, through stimulus, and they have no job. So they have more money than they've had ever before. Meanwhile, they're the guns that they could never afford before they can now afford. 
the drugs they could never afford before in terms of buying some to resell, they can. So what we have seen is there's quite a bit of violent crime among young people who their first offense is capital murder. Their first offense. Now, this isn't, you know, across the board, but more of that is, is coming up now than ever before in, in our history. How much of that would be stranger on stranger? Or is it just inside the criminal organization? Right now, it's, it's primarily inside criminal organizations, gangs, um, cartels, uh, those in between that are just middleman selling. Because you can think of a scenario. We, we've had several cases that mirror this, this scenario. You have three individuals who get together for a drug deal. One of them uh, decides that they are getting ripped off and they pull their gun. Ten years ago, those three may have not even met because none of them would have had access to the drugs in order to resell them. It wouldn't have been worth their time. Or they worked for someone who said, you will go sell this drug and if you screw up, I will kill you. Now they can almost freelance and they get together and one decides I'm being ripped off. Well, now all three of them have guns. Ten years ago, all three of them, maybe one of them would have had a gun. So when you, when you have that scenario, you can only imagine now multiply that by 10, 12, 15, and you have these little situations that are popping up. We're having shootouts among gangs and stuff. There will be, it will happen to strangers. This, this can't continue to be in these closed society of criminal groups. This, this will leak out and someone's going to, um, something tragic is going to happen. To me, as far as the cartels and I, and most of the, unfortunately, most of the methamphetamine, the cocaine, black tar heroin, most of the marijuana that, and fentanyl that makes its way around is now ultimately controlled by the cartels or shipped by the cartels or held or stashed by the cartels. I'm, I'm worried that until Mexico, maybe I shouldn't say until, unless Mexico gets control over that to some degree, um, it's going to be very hard for us to ever, t- you know, tamp it down to the point where it's manageable uh, because there's such a supply of cartel members that come across um, and there's the subdelegates here that operate on their behalf. Do you think that through individuals such as you, officers and deputies and agents that work on cartels, if we got an aggressive effort by prosecutors to, which many, many do, to go after them, can we, do you think, uh, get it under control or are we dependent upon Mexico? What do you think? That's a great question. I, I think rather than it being a one point of failure, it seems to me there needs to be a multi-pronged approach, which I, I really do hate suggesting that within government because everything in government seems to be, you know, we have to boil the ocean to solve this issue. And, <laughs> and that's not, that, that really isn't the case. That shouldn't always be the answer. But in this case, I, I do think there needs to be operations in tandem, one of them being prosecutors uh, taking on uh, these cases, especially the violent crime and gun cases. The more that we can work with, like we worked with ATF to find situations where we can take people, who a violent felon who had a gun, and move them to federal custody because they get hammered on the federal side. Criminals don't want to go federal. Never, ever, ever. They want to stay on the state, state or local side. It always benefits them. And there's a number of reasons for that, which you know you would know, obviously, but 
uh, the federal side time is more harsh. The liberties are, are tougher, et cetera. So they don't want to go federal. So I think that's part of it. The other part is a federal government diplomacy with Mexico. Uh, the remain in Mexico uh, policy has been re or the Supreme Court has said it needs to be reinstated. That was helpful for immigration, but separately, the cartels we know were using immigrants as cover to move drugs. So you could actually see drug seizures on the border picked up in areas where there was also a massive migrant movement. So they were using it as cover. So anything that stems immigration uh, prevents the cartel from leveraging that to get their drugs across. So I think that the, the third thing I would say is local control. Politics is local. And I would encourage uh, your audience, if you're really interested in how can we stop this, really, it's getting in touch with your sheriff, getting in touch with a local police chief, getting in touch with your school board to see what kind of drug trends they're seeing. Local impact matters. D.C. responds to local. So I think that is really the third and maybe the most important is getting locally involved, aware and knowledgeable of what's going on and seeing how you might be able to contribute to the safety of your community. Because if you're not involved locally, you can't expect someone to come along and do it for you. Robert and I believe that uh, violent crime, I mean, truly serious violent crime and deadly drugs, you know, fentanyl and the, the unquestionably deadly drugs, that's probably the most apolitical or non-political thing in the world. In other words, it's not a Democrat or Republican issue at all. No one wants violent crime to come to them or their neighborhood or their family. So you're right. It, everyone, no matter what stripes or spots they have uh, in terms of politics, should want prosecutors to go, you know, go after violent criminals, should want judges to hold them in jail. There's a huge problem now, which actually is a uh, tangent of the great case Robert and I discussed, the Kenneth McDuff serial killer case where he got out of prison early. But now uh, in Dallas County, Texas, uh, two or three months ago, there were 25 capital murder defendants out on bond running the streets. There's probably in Dallas, Fort Worth now, I would bet there's a hundred. Um, they shouldn't be out. I'm sorry. Uh, you're, you, if you're that violent, I know it's an accusation, but a judge has found or grand jury has found probable cause. There has been a finding. There has been a finding that you did it. And so uh, at any rate, we're revisiting something that Robert and I talk about often, which is violent criminals being out to lurk and roam and kill. And so we're seeing a trend in some cities in Texas, but also across the U.S. of of DAs letting people out on personal recognizance bonds, which is no money. We've had officers killed at traffic stops in Houston, and they're just recently been let go for you know two hundred dollars bond with a gun crime. Uh, I've been in Austin shooting on the the podcast being made into a television show and I've spent time in homicide there and you know, they've got it. They're on a record homicide rate. It, it's like they let everybody go there. They even had a murder there and they caught the guy because he was out for a murder, but he had on a monitoring bracelet. <laughs> they caught him on the second murder. Yeah. It's just crazy that, um, some district attorneys, uh, and you, U S attorneys are not so much subject to this because the federal rules are different, but within Texas, there's, 254 counties, there are probably, I'm guessing, 150 district attorneys. Some have more than one county. And in places, um, district attorneys who, have, who look at crime as a societal 
um, well, almost as a self-help problem, that's fine about certain things. You can disagree about marijuana. You can disagree about theft even. Uh, people think some theft is excusable. No matter how someone feels about that, someone murdering a stranger, there's nothing, uh, there's no excuse for that. I'm sorry. And so we, until we get citizens electing and keeping district attorneys that will hold people in jail who are accused and have been found to have committed by a grand jury serious violent crime, uh, we're going to have more of this. And it, you know, we're really, we're, we're giving a cookie to someone who just stole a cookie. We're rewarding very violent criminals by letting them right back out within hours of killing someone. And I think DAs in some cases, it's not so much that they have a warped sense of, of the crime. They have a warped sense of detention. I think they you're have right. an unfavorable view of putting someone in jail because of the concept, the academic concept of the jail. And it's really disheartening because the jail is, you know, you'll hear things like, well, they didn't, they weren't rebuilt. This didn't uh, rehabilitate them. Rehabilitate <laughs> them. They, and, you, and you say, you know, I wasn't sent to time out as a child. I'm not trying to draw a clumsy comparison, but I wasn't sent to time out as a child because I was necessarily for the sole purpose of me being, I was sent there as a time out as a consequence of my action, regardless of what I did after that. And some people are so mean or so dangerous, just so, let's just say, so violent that we have to be, and we have the right to be protected from them. We have to have them in, in steel and concrete so they can't kill me tonight. It's as simple as that. And we feel like in Texas, uh, we've forgotten the lessons of history from the Kenneth McDuff case because McDuff was the tip of the iceberg. Uh, to relieve prison overcrowding, the system here secretly started releasing 150 inmates a day. No matter what. No matter what. And they and they later, a parole board member admitted they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. And in scraping it, you know, one of the things I reported back then, McDuff was among them. They had released more than 60 former death row inmates whose sentences had been commuted to life in 1972 when the Supreme Court struck down the death penalty. They became eligible for parole, but no one ever imagined you would let these men out. Oh, and they did with a consequence on a society. And the, the jails are overwhelmed right now as well. The, the downside, one of the issues with detention across the nation is finding people, just like every other. If you, if you look at McDonald's, you look at these different restaurants, everyone's in the last nine months has probably gone to a restaurant and someone has said, we just can't get waiters. We're sorry, this is off the menu because we don't have the cook to prepare it. The same thing is happening to tension. They're having problems recruiting for some of the same reasons. It's, there's no real incentive when you're being paid and there's other incentives not, not, to, uh, not to come in. So that's creating a problem too. So as, the po as violent crime increases, the inmate population increases, staffing is remaining stagnant. And so sheriffs and DAs, honest ones, are having to make really tough decisions on how do we maintain the safety and security of our people and the jail and the community knowing that this is, is uh, ballooning. We know from history, the history that Robert and I have spent 40 hours or more discussing um, and taping shows for, the answer is this, pay them more, pay more, build more jails. As to violent crime, let's just talk about violent crime. Texas decided 
in the 80s and 90s. I let them out. We're not, as the Republican governor at the time said, we're not building, we're not spending our good tax dollars to build more prisons. Why not? You just, you just had innocent people killed tonight because of your, you didn't want to spend tax. You want to spend uh, as a taxpayer an extra $9 a year in taxes or do you want to be murdered? And so the answer as to institutions, county jails and so forth that can't get people is pay them more. Pay them more so you're staffed up. Give them a better, uh, better incentives to work there. Make the shifts different. Be creative. Come up with a plan so that you can keep people in jail that need to be in jail. Do you need bail reform for nonviolent crime, for regarding marijuana and so forth, and petty theft? Sure, and they've done that. Almost all over Texas, they've done that. They don't hold those people anymore. They used to. And people that are indigent, people that can't afford to make bond, but it's a nonviolent crime, they fixed that already. And Tarrant County has stepped up to the plate and raised, I think now we have the highest paid starting salary for detention there officers. You go. They responded yeah. immediately to that, which uh, should be an encouragement to the people of Tarrant County. Yes. Well, one of the things we saw in back in history is that both parties, Democrat and Republican, talk tough on crime. They passed around 100 laws aimed at different drug offenses. Crack cocaine was a big problem, but refused to build any new prisons. And you just literally had blood in the streets from all of these violent criminals released that were a consequence. And the public didn't know it. They, they had no idea this was going on until it really came out with the, the McDuff case and others. Yeah, they... I, again, I think there's a warped sense of what detention, as you mentioned, Bill, what detention is intended for. And until we can move past that, you're going to constantly have DAs that, that, and others that see the jail as some sort of uh, inappropriate use of tax dollars. And that's going to be a struggle. And that's where I go back to that third point, local control. You're, you you in the county, citizens in that area, they vote in that district attorney. And you can vote out that district attorney, and you don't need outside forces to, to influence that. You don't need to go to D.C. to do that. Let's talk about the border a minute. We've seen with a change in policy, there is a flood of immigrants coming across. And it's all controlled by the cartels. They're making a, a bloody fortune. And one of the things you see is all of these young women coming, and they don't have any skills, and they're indebted to the cartels. Are we going to see a surge in sex trafficking or other kinds of crimes out of the, all of this? What do you see coming? What we have, I can tell you what we've seen and then what I think's coming. Right. What we have seen is cartel moving in people. When COVID Hit, the border was shut down. It was very difficult to move the price of methamphetamine. So meth is king in North Texas. And there's a number of reasons for that. Partially it has to do with it has a shelf life. Cocaine, powdered cocaine could sit in a closet as long as it stayed dry and, and out of, out of uh, humidity. It's, it can be uh, sold and used 30 years later. Methamphetamine has a shelf life. So when it gets North Texas, it's dispersed pretty quickly. And when the border was shut down, the price of a gram of meth went from $20 to $80. $20 for a gram of meth uh, is dirt cheap, but that's because there's so much of it. When the border opened up, 
a lot of cartel who were waiting to come over to manage some of the drug distribution. They came with these drugs. So what we're seeing is more and more reinforcements coming in to uh, help leverage the drug distribution network. So we're seeing an increased presence of decision makers here locally, meaning I don't have to call back to Mexico. So, I can so make... they're in a position to run human trafficking. Absolutely. And, and, but what they tend to do is they will outsource that to criminal gangs who use human trafficking as their source of revenue. And the cartel, they, they understand that's a hot, delicate issue. They're going to get involved if it makes money, but that's going to bring a lot of heat, as they say in the law enforcement world, a lot of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So these criminal gangs who are less sophisticated, if you will, but willing to get involved, they are going to be more intent on human trafficking. And human trafficking is more lucrative than drugs because once drugs has been used, they're done. A female can be used 12, 15 times a day, and she can be trafficked all, all over mm. the country. So that's what makes human trafficking so difficult to counteract is, um, is the fact that uh, you, the supply can be moved around, and if you don't know who that supply is, it can be very difficult to stop. Moreover, many of them are addicted to drugs or they're put in a situation where they don't know they can leave. They've effectively been brainwashed. Our human trafficking unit and those units that, that work around North Texas, they'll tell you, you it may take seven or eight times an outcry. A victim will make an outcry seven or eight times before they'll even consider sharing information about the people that are running them. It takes that many engagements to get them out and feel safe to communicate. Uh, so, uh, go, so that's a very long answer mm -hmm, to your question, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's, it's one of those that are going to go in tandem. If the drug networks continue to thrive, we're seeing fentanyl used to be in a couple places. Now fentanyl's everywhere. It's international. It's it, and they're what they're doing. The, the word cutting where you, you separate, you, you insert it in other drugs. They're cutting other drugs with fentanyl. So heroin, methamphetamine. Why, why are they doing that? Because it seems like it would make you don't want to kill your customers. I was in Brazil years ago, and I uh, was talking to a state police officer in Sao Paulo, and he said, "Well, our gangs down here quit do, quit selling crack. You know, when crack was first popular, and cocaine's everywhere in, in Brazil, or can be get, can be obtained everywhere." Uh, and he said, "Well, we they found out they were killing too many of their customers and making them too crazy, so we we don't do crack down here. We just do powdered cocaine." But it seems like the fentanyl would kill the customer. No. Yes. ODs are, have, uh, were those fentanyl-involved ODs have, have gone up significantly in the last two years. Uh, but I don't know that they— Better high? Yes, that's part of it. The user knows there's a better high coming. That's part of it. But I, think, I don't think there's much concern for killing the user. The cart, and, and that's where you begin cutting it with other drugs. That way the, the high gets better. They'll come back to you exclusively. And if a competitor is using fentanyl inappropriately, they'll kill— their users, I won't kill mine, and therefore I can make more money. And, and there's almost no science. There's certainly no specificity to how they cut it. You know, the, there's we like to, we like to say there's no quality control. No quality control. Yeah, they'll. The, it might be that you're getting 10 percent methamphetamine and one percent fentanyl in one dose, and the next one is 30 percent of each, and you're dead. Yes. Yeah. So, wow. 
Well, if you ever see the people out there dealing and the, you know, they don't uh, cut this stuff in FDA approved labs. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you see the reach of the Mexican cartels? Because we've seen reports how they're in other countries around the world. They become an international uh, criminal organization, Australia, Europe. Do you pick that up in your intelligence? The, their reach is incredible. Their, their sophistication is, uh, it's really unmatched in, certain, in, in criminal circles. And we see a reach among the Sinaloa cartel, specifically uh, the Jalisco cartel, who are former Sinaloa members. Mm -hmm. And they have burst on the scene well, they burst on the scene, what, five, six years ago, really became juggernauts, if you will. And they were tapping into the Sinaloa uh, cartel routes. They were using their logistic networks. They had control of this, so they understood how to, how to use it. So the, when we talk about reach, you really have to consider the Sinaloa cartel and the Jalisco uh, New Generation cartel are the, are the two that are, um, have enormous and, and professional operations. And, and Jalisco cartel have a presence in Texas that the Sinaloa cartel never had. I, I just glimpsed an analogy, which may not be fair to Mexico, but it may be too. Uh, in Afghanistan, you have a, what is a government. It's a corrupt, it's going to be a corrupt, twisted government, but it will be a government of some sort run by the Taliban for some period of time. And within that, all kinds of terrible things happen there and will be exported. In Mexico, whose government has struggled with corruption since the revolution, um, the cartels, either out of corruption or fear, are allowed by the government, by that I mean fear or corruption by the government, fear that they'll kill us all, <laughs> they'll kill the leaders, they'll kill the president, it's nothing to, for them to do that. Um, or through corruption, I worked a case many years ago, we could never get it off the ground, but where the Colombians, this is when the cartels weren't doing all the transshipping, where the Colombians decided to try to bribe the entire Mexican cabinet. They were sick of piecemealing it. But that's the level that it can reach there. So in Mexico, you have a government that, for fear or because of corruption, is allowing the cartel to run amok to control whole areas, to slaughter people and hang them from bridges uh, in Veracruz and Tampico and elsewhere. I'm not sure that's a lot different than in terms of this, in terms of this exporting drugs and terror, murder is terror, uh, to the United States. I wish we considered it more important. Absolutely. I've, I've talked to people over and over again who see the Taliban and see what goes on in the Middle East as some sort of, um, as a dynamic that's exclusive to the Middle East. And they, and they see the, the violence and, you know, uh, beheadings to be specific and are traumatized. Like, how do people live like that? And I said, if you just journalists look, in Mexico, if you look over the border, this kind of stuff happens. You're uh, at one point, um, what the, one of the Mexican border cities, uh, was one of the most violent in the country. Um, so you don't have to look too far to that. And it is, when you really look at the facts, it, it, it is quite startling to see the level of violence and the level of brutality that we don't have to travel to Afghanistan to see. 
the cartels are so rich now. My concern as an investigative reporter is their reach into um, American politicians, county government, city government, mayors, district attorneys, of literally buying people off. And we've seen cases here in Dallas, Texas, where it doesn't take much to buy people off. And I've done those stories and all. So any signs of that concerns? That's one of my primary concerns. So I go back to encouraging local control by citizens. If you're thinking that way, so are they. When you look at, let's go big, the Chinese government and you, that situation with Eric Swalwell, congressman out of California, he was given a defensive debriefing by the FBI, which essentially says, hey, you're not doing anything wrong, but you need to know who's around you. Well, what got lost in all that is there was two mayors that were also involved with this female spy. And the question I kept raising was, why are we not talking about that? Why would the Chinese go after local mayors? Like, what, what would benefit them? And I, I mean, I have my own theories and I think are correct in, in most situations in that you, you go after the low hanging fruit because frankly, that's the most bang for your buck. It takes less money and I get more uh, access to strategic things that are in those areas. Just like hacking. I don't want to hack the U S government. I can hack a local institution and get some of the same material I need hack a subcontractor versus the major contractor. The cartels are also thinking like this. More money is, or it's more effective and less money if you can pay off. A state a, judge in some small county on the border. Correct. And now you have control and you have a corridor there. Why would I, why would I bribe a federal official? That's going to get me more time. That's going to become uh, problematic for my organization. But if I bribe local officials all the way up, and if I'm in an area where that official has so much clout that no one's willing to push back on them, I'm good to go. Right. Well, and if you destroy integrity in a republic, that's the downfall of it. We're going to pause for a moment. We'll be right back. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. Hello, I'm Robert Riggs here with my co-host, Bill Johnston, and we're back for part two of our interview with David Grantham. David is a former Air Force Special Operations Intelligence Officer and doing counterintelligence and Afghanistan and Iraq. This is his book, Consequences of an Intelligence Officer's War, a great look at boots on the ground of what it took to try to get sources uh, to reveal terrorist plans around U.S. bases and to protect U.S. soldiers. David is now with the Tarrant County Sheriff's Department based out of Fort Worth, where he heads up intelligence. And we're going to talk about 
game rooms and start by telling us what is a game room because there is a proliferation of them across Texas and other states. A game room is essentially a location. It can be an existing business or, or just a standalone uh, shed or vacant building where, where someone has put in gambling machines and those gambling machines, as the name implies, they're used you know, for gambling and people will come in there and gamble on these machines, but it's done in a way that under Texas law, it's illegal to cash out winnings. So if I gamble and you cannot cash me out with money, so what they'll do is they'll design this game room and they'll put prizes on the wall to give the suggestion that anybody coming in, law enforcement wise, will see that and assume that there is no money being paid out, uh, it's just merely prizes. And these rooms can have uh, 30 to 40 games in them. And some organizations and some businesses now with new uh, ordinances in place in Tarrant County specifically, they know you can have at least five games and, and they'll have stickers that show approval, uh, but yet they're not using them for legal gambling purposes or legal purposes. They're, they're using them to gamble. That is the, the structure of a game room. And it's not so much what we're talking about, about these and having handled some of these cases. It's not, we're not here to discuss the morals of gambling. Someone could drive an hour and a half north to the red river and from where we are seated and, and going to Oklahoma and do the same thing in a, in a legitimate, but it's what, because this is illicit and against the law in Texas and so forth, it's it's what happens with all of this money generated from it, right? And the illegality and the scurrilous uh, conduct that takes place in connection with that. Tell us a little bit about what what looks like is happening with this tens and hundreds and millions of dollars that come out of these rooms. So one, if you you we've seen game rooms where there'll be thirty gambling, uh, uh, 30 machines and those machines in one night, each one could profit the owner a thousand dollars. So if you have 30 machines, you can begin doing the math and that's just one day. You multiply that per week, 30,000 per day per week, multiply that by most people have more than one game room. They have three or four of these game rooms. The profits are enormous. And those profits are, they're obviously not taxed, but they also are flowing to places that we're not quite clear where it's going. It's not, there are a lot of operators who uh, are likely using money to fuel other criminal activity overseas. We see a lot of, of uh, uh, non-U.S. citizens or non-U.S. born operating these these multiple game families will operate these game rooms and they're not using their profits locally or at least their lifestyle doesn't suggest that they'll have a how a, a modest house they'll have a cars that are it's not like the old time drug deal drug dealer where you see them driving right, fancy, fancy cars and and beautiful homes and they have you know n- no uh no record of any kind of employment some of this money's possibly going to the Middle East. Some of it's going in Central and South America. Correct. It's traveling in places that uh, we, we know specifically it'll go to places 
uh, in Jordan, in Pakistan, uh, India, and we don't know what those profits are being used for. But they're sure not paying taxes like we all have to pay taxes on our income, which is one of the fundamental things that's unfair about it. Some some person that has to pay taxes on their income goes in and loses $1,000, and that person takes it gleefully and doesn't even pay tax for the most part. And the one of the biggest problems with the game room, outside of the money laundering and where it's likely being used to fuel, fuel criminal activity, possibly terrorism in other places, it also fuels violent crime locally. So what we- Game, game room ripoffs, right? Game robberies. Room, robberies. But what you can think of a scenario where you have someone who's a drug user. They want their drugs. They don't have the money to get it. They go in and gamble what little money they have. They may profit. Then they go buy this dr- these drugs. Well, as that person is leaving with that money, there's a stick-up man there who knows I need that money so I can go get my drugs. So you create an environment where crime is happening in order to do that. Moreover, since these operators generally operate their establishments illegally and they know there's legal activity. It's not regulated. They don't mind other illegal activity go, going yes. on there. So what they'll do is they'll allow for drug dealers to come in and sell their drugs because they know if you're on meth, and mind you, meth keeps you up for two, three days at a time. If you're on meth, you'll stay and gamble longer. And they will encourage this type of sale to go on. They won't endorse it or do it themselves, but they will allow for that. So I've talked to, I don't know how many drug dealers that said, if I have ever have a problem offloading any drugs, I go straight to a game room and I'm, I, I get rid of it immediately. I was telling you in my experience, not just prosecutors, but I've had judges tell me, you know, this looks like Penny Annie, you know, gambling here, little slot machine in the back of a gas station. I don't want that in my court. Is, you've run across this, haven't you? Absolutely. It's so what I, when it comes to intelligence, you, if you could visualize two triangles that are, that their points meet in the middle for law enforcement, for prosecutors, uh, it generally starts at this end and gets smaller. You have a crime that's committed, it's investigated, and then prosecuted the tip. Intelligence works the opposite direction. It starts at the tip for a, where a need. There is a need. We, we ca- collect intelligence about that need, and then we analyze that information in a larger scope, which is then can turn into something. What ends up happening is we collect this information on game rooms. We show it, but when it comes to the prosecution, it becomes difficult because they're not the ones selling drugs or we need two to three years to investigate the money laundering side of it. So that becomes problematic because there's only so much runway that you're, that you're given on a local level. So what ends up happening is what is the immediate crime we can look at right now? Uh, gambling, organized crime. That's usually a good one. But again, when the underlying offense is gambling, it becomes less, uh, uh, less of an incentive for prosecutors to pursue. Never mind that it is the source of violent crime. So what we have looked at is some of those OCDF or uh, larger federal organized crime cases that maybe we could rope in uh, when we can prove there's an organization. We can say there's money laundering inside this organization. They're fencing stolen equipment, stolen goods here. They're allowing the drug uh, sale of drugs, and by virtue of that, they're profiting from those drug sales. That's really the approach you have to take, but you have to get a lot of people on board to appreciate how problematic game rooms themselves are for a local community. Legitimate 
gambling in a jurisdiction that knows how to regulate it. Often, I've been told, some of the safest places around a casino in Las Vegas, for instance, you have law enforcement off-duty or former law enforcement doing security. You have cameras everywhere. You have regulation of the profits. Uh, you have immediate tax reporting requirements. And you have tremendous security. It's so rare. It happens very, very uh, rarely that a casino is robbed or there's violent crime around a casino. You have just the flip side underbelly here. You have completely unregulated uh, gambling, which yields all of the dark fungus that comes with it. But it is hard to get people interested, Robert. You know, I had an experience where there was a, a group robbing uh, storage units. I mean, on a big scale, leaving with TVs, furniture, clothes, washing machines. And the detectives told me that it all gets fenced at game rooms. I mean, it seems like the game room is kind of the, the nexus of criminal activity. It's a great way to put it. It is. And it's a nexus of criminal activity. And yet when you try to get that in front of a prosecutor, they look for the criminal activity that's being, so they would look at, well, who is fencing to them? That's almost sometimes the game room is, could just as well be a random gas station or a parking lot in McDonald's where they're fencing equipment. And, uh, that becomes the challenge. Um, the they don't realize it's a magnet. It is. And if there was a, uh, and, and many prosecutors in good faith will go down this path with you. Many judges in good faith will try to find a way to get there, but it becomes uh, very difficult that you can't prosecute for being a magnet for crime. But you know, I have been in these places and you'll find uh, grandma in there as well. Yes. And that's the other, you have to educate your local community on what the game room is. Cause the, 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 some of these, again, these people that are elected or appointed by elected officials, they're responding to or responsive to a community. And if the community is not, does not see the game room as a threat or as a problem, because in their mind, it's someone who is just gambling away, maybe their retirement money, um, of their doing, their choosing, uh, you have to educate on that. There's, uh, it's a magnet for criminal activity and something that happened at your local gas station very well could have started at a game room. Wow. Are you also looking at, this is all from the game rooms, but are do you look at the, uh, computer crimes, uh, the, you know, extortion and stuff people are doing these days? Yes. we we track, uh, cyber criminal activity and cyber trends. Uh, it's becoming uh, more and more difficult for local institutions because uh, much like the cartel and even uh, adversaries like China are recruiting on a local level, elected officials or, or just uh, attempting to, to access things on a local level because it's easier, they also will hack local institutions. It's much easier to hack a local police department and get information or uh, the big problem right now is ransomware. Yes. Um, that That's becoming the most problematic because for under the same idea, criminal organizations know, uh, why would I hack Department of Homeland Security when I can hack, let's name a city in a police department, hack them, freeze their information, 
there was cases in Florida that had to be thrown out or, or adjudicated because they lost the, re the records were destroyed, the electronic records. They know that now, or in DC, they had accessed source information. And that becomes incredibly dangerous when you have criminal organizations that access that information and then hold it for ransom. You're, you're making a very difficult decision. Do we pay this ransom to get our source information back and our criminal files for prosecution? But just like the uh, 10, 20 years ago, the common, uh, often phone and internet scam, was they were predominantly out of Nigeria. And they were promises that, you, that someone had inherited money but needed a bank account to run it through. So if you had just uh, given them your bank account information and $10,000, they'll give you $100,000 next week because King, whoever right. has just given them money, then there were thousands of these everywhere. The problem being they originated in Nigeria. There is no way in the world you're going to get a criminal out of Nigeria. It's not even worth indicting someone. <clears throat> and similarly, the Russian-based, Ukrainian-based, Chinese-based, pick a place, Brazilian-based, South Korea-based scams, it's the perfect crime almost because the reach is so far that uh, other than a few efforts the Justice Department has made, the U.S. Justice Department has made, it's almost impossible to get accountability. So almost you spend most of your time with warning people yes. about it. Yep. You, you begin putting your whole shtick is putting together products as warnings versus trying to enforce. The other thing that we encounter is there's a fairly significant gap in the federal threshold the amount of money that has to be quarantined, if you will, to use that word in a, yeah. <laughs> in, a in a different sense. Um, there's a threshold there that has to be met on the local level. That threshold isn't there, but there's a significant gap that on the local level, there aren't really the resources to respond to a, a massive amount that that could be just below the threshold of the federal government's willing to prosecute. So you have this wide gap when it comes to these um, these ransomwares, and that creates even more incentive. And criminals begin to know stay under this number, but above this number, and there's a good chance they're just going to pay the ransom. It's like the convenience kidnappings. I that's what I call them in Brazil and Mexico and other places in Central and South America. If they kidnap an American tourist and just want ten thousand dollars, they'll probably get it. They want a million dollars. No, they won't. So what do they do then? But these convenience kidnappings committed in Mexico and Central and South America by often by police officers, frankly, and others, um, they know just set the bar low and you'll get paid uh, likely and someone will wire money and go to your next case. It, it's clever. It's uh, sadly clever. We talk about wiring money though. The ransomware thieves, they all want in cryptocurrency. Correct. And I, I, we, you know, we just saw what about a month ago, the FBI was able to recover some of the, the Bitcoin that was yes. uh, taken from, uh, uh, from ransomware investigation. And I think that is going to be an important Avenue yes. is finding, uh, that transfer and just in inserting themselves to stop the transfer or to recover some of that. Does the complexity of this though, just exceed the capabilities of local departments? It's it's, if it hasn't gotten there already, uh, then it will reach the local departments have 
are doing, uh, really doing their best in many cases to try to advance their cyber understanding uh, and their their protection. But you know, f- local governments are what I like to say are often ten years behind yes. the trend. Yeah. And what we're seeing is n- the defensive nature of cyber operations at a local institution. Uh, are catching up, but we're past, we're kind of past the, you need to, you know, bone up on your defensive measures. We're, we're really at a point where you need to be able to investigate and prosecute. You need to do everything from screen grab messages to store this information, to have an IP ad, you know, you have to have all these things in order to deliver to a prosecutor who is then willing to take the case right now. We're in a, we're in a defensive nature. Yes. I'm a member of the FBI's InfraGuard unit here, which was set up to protect infrastructure after 9-11. And I was in a briefing about all the threats and what's happening in cyber. And I turned to the agent next to me and said, you know, I think we're all a lot better off when we just put it all on paper and file cabinets and lock the file cabinet. Yeah, it's, it, it is. You almost get to the point where, uh, where it becomes so hard to fathom. You know, I, I, there was a department store somewhere that was hacked and they said they got 30 million customer records. And I went, you know what, whatever, if you're willing to sift through 30 million (laughs) records of customers, I mean, if you got mine, you know, great. We were having to really balance risk versus reward. And I, because things have become so digital now, the info we used to say in the intelligence community with, uh, with different adversaries like China, they will collect everything, take it back, and then sift through it. Russia was specific. They wanted this, and they would work hard at attacking that and getting it. So what we thought was, you know, let's just send them junk. When they ha- when we when they hack something, and we know they will, let's just have a whole you know truckload of of useless paperwork that at least will bog them down their analytical process. Send them War and Peace uh, <laughs> something a thousand times exactly, yeah. and let them sift through it. David Grantham, thank you for joining us. This concludes part two of our interview with you. And once again, the book is Consequences, an Intelligence Officer's War. The boots on the ground look at what it was like to try to gather intelligence to protect U.S. uh, soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan. Thank you again for joining us, and thank you for your service. Thank you. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our journey into darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety.
Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.